The Mysterious Circumstances podcast is hosted by Justin Rimmel. This is an American Crimecast production. Visit us at our new home at accproductions.org. Remember, everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Welcome to Mysterious Circumstances Podcast. This is a awesome bonus episode we got for you here today. I had the pleasure of meeting um, Mr. Edgerton uh, probably a couple months ago now um, at a dinner for my for my cousin. And the best part about it, Les, is I walked in, he said, Les, this is Justin. Justin, this is Les. You guys should talk. <laughs> He's like, you guys like each other. And we ended up spending a couple hours talking, and I just had to have you on the podcast. And the main reason being is because you have led a very, very interesting life, and you do very well by yourself now. And it's honestly, uh, you know, it's honestly impressive. And and to be honest with you, man, quite quite an inspiration, man. You know what I mean? So, um, I hope so. yeah. <laughs> It is, man. It's actually it's actually very very awesome. So, um I guess we'll get started with uh you know, what do you do with yourself these days, Les, before we start getting into your past a little bit. Okay. Well, these days I write full time and that's 7 days a week. I get up about 5:30 and write till about about 6:30 and have supper and go to bed. And that's 7 days a week. That so. is awesome. Um and you've written uh You've written what? Uh, eighteen books now. I've got twenty out. You've got and, twenty out. Yeah, and there's uh, three or four more due to come out this year yet. So awesome! <laughs> and you've recently, uh, I, if I remember correctly, you recently sold your memoirs. Is that correct? No, uh, I actually had sold them several times before, and I keep pulling them back. <laughs> right publisher, and uh, but I, my agents were real. My agents real closer. To sending it out now, and I know it would get bought because I've had so many offers before. Okay. I turned down several offers of ten thousand, which isn't a lot, but it's decent uh, as an advance. But uh, yeah, it'll get out there. Then I'll have to move and change my name. Yeah, probably, <laughs> probably. probably uh, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, and let's see, you. Uh, what do you do with some of your other spare time? I know you run a blog as well, and you do some teaching classes online, and then you, uh, I believe, speak at conferences as well? Yeah, uh, I, the blog is pretty intermittent. Whenever I feel like I've got something to say, I'll jump on there, but I, it's not a big deal for me. Uh, I write full-time, and I also have an online uh, writing class for novelists that's been going on nonstop for about six years now. <laughs> and, uh, We've had close to three dozen people get their books published after going through the class. That's awesome. Yeah, I think so. I, I get. I don't know of anybody else that's got that kind of track record. I really don't. But they call it Les's Boot Camp for Writers, and I'm a bitch on there. <laughs> sucks, sucks, it sucks. But then we also tell you how to make it better, so it doesn't suck. Yeah, that's that's what it's all about, man. At the end of the day, you know. Yeah. That's very very cool. Yeah, I, I do go to quite a few conventions, writers' conventions and things like that, uh, and that pay me, so that's nice. 
the best bit I ever had was uh, a couple of years ago. I was the keynote speaker at the Oklahoma Writers Association, and they paid four thousand expenses for that. So that's my tall cotton moment. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm going to one. Uh, I think it's in August in Green Bay, Wisconsin. We're going to be staying at a casino and hotel at the Green Bay Packers Zone, and uh, and the Indians. And um, in that one, uh, it's called the Police or the uh, Writers Police Academy. It's a guy named uh, Lee. Uh, oh God, I'm going to have Mel Parker now. <laughs> anyway, he's a very famous writer that that hosts this Police Academy. Last year they had uh, uh, Lee uh, Child. And so they have people like that appear, and I'm going to get to appear this year and tell it's they're, they what they do at this convention. They, they all the, the attendees they go through all the police academy stuff. In fact, they put her body out in the woods, and they have to find him and figure out how he's killed. And they they're involved in shootouts and everything to do with police work. And I'm going to be the other side of the coin. I'm going to tell them how we evade all these police people. <laughs> That's useful knowledge on both behalfs, I suppose. <laughs> All right, man. Um, well, I guess uh, let's dip into some a little bit of your early early life, man. What was your home life like, and uh, when did you actually start writing and uh, eventually start uh, getting into trouble? Or you know, did you have a troubled childhood or anything? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you can't be a writer if you didn't. In fact, I was at a convention years ago, a writers' convention. Mary Carr, who wrote the Liars Club, very famous book, and me were two of the speakers. And afterwards, they had a Q and A, uh, and somebody asked us. They said, "Well, they asked Mary. They said, what does it take to be a writer?'" And she said, "Oh, that's easy. You just have to come from a dysfunctional family." And we're all nodding our heads wisely, yeah, yeah. And then somebody had a follow-up question, and they said, "Mary, what do you? What? Do you, how do you?" Uh, Qualify a dysfunctional family. She said, oh, that's easy. Any family with more than two members. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On a side note, man, I got to say, your Facebook posts are probably the funniest shit I've ever read in a long time, man. You got, like, some of the greatest jokes on there ever. Oh, well, yeah. I still <laughs> more. Um, but I'm sorry. I'm trying to light a cigarette here. No, you do your thing, man. Uh, I was born in, in Texas and grew up between Texas and Indiana and some other places, but uh, yeah, I had a real dysfunctional childhood. My mother was a, she was a religious cultist, basically. She was way, uh, she was out of her board, and my father was an atheist. It turns out it wasn't my real father. I found that out four years ago. All my life, he and my mother claimed he was my father, and then I found out that he wasn't, so huh. that was a big upheaval in my life. Actually, it's kind of good to know because he abused me quite a bit. Now I know why. Yeah, that probably a good, yeah, good indication. Yeah, and you've uh, you started writing from pretty pretty early age on, didn't you? Yeah, I was five. Yeah. I, I immediately after I read my first book, I thought this is what I want to do, and I never wavered from that. And I thought at the time I could write a better book than the one I read, and I couldn't then, but I can now. Nice, nice. Yeah. Um, what was it about writing that pulled you in personally? That just the escape of it, or yeah, yeah, you, you pretty well nailed it. Yeah, I, I really did have a fucked up childhood. I uh, my so-called father abused me in every way you can think it. Think of uh, probably a couple you won't think of offhand. 
my mother was absent to us. She lay, the only image I have of her is laying on her bed, reading her Bible and the amount of yellow tissues all around her while she was crying and weeping and she wasn't good enough for God and all this crap. And we were left on our own pretty much to raise ourselves. But uh, I give you, for instance, when I was 12, we moved to Indiana. We were living in a farmhouse that we rented. And my mother was, I, I was cooking supper because she didn't do anything. I usually did the cooking. My sister did the laundry and the cleaning and all that stuff. And we helped raise our other siblings. But she came in. We had this old gas stove, and she came in while I was cooking something, turned the heat up on the stove, grabbed my arm, and put my hand in the flame until it was sizzling. And when I was yelling and crying and all this, she said, that's just a short, that's a small taste of what life's going to be like in hell if you don't get saved. So that was my childhood. That, that pretty well wraps it up. Shit, man. She uh, had my dad build a doghouse they put in the kitchen. When I when I left home to join the Navy, uh, and uh, whenever my sisters or brother got in trouble, they'd go in a doghouse. If they're really bad, they had to eat dry dog food for supper. But, yeah, it was pretty uh-huh. So you mentioned the age of 12, and I believe that was probably right around the time you first started uh, getting into a little bit of trouble, right? Mm, yeah, about 10 or 11. A friend of mine, that were on a Sunday afternoon in Texas, which is a small town, Freeport, Texas, little bitty town in the Gulf. We were just cruising around town, town looking for trouble, something to get into, and we spotted a lax sporting goods store, and... Uh, Went around back and crawled up a little shed next to it, and there was a window. We busted the window out and crawled inside. And I think I was 11. I think we were both 11. And crawling. We just had a field day. <clears throat> and uh, we're, I was I fished and hunted every day of my life when I lived in Texas. And uh, we grabbed handfuls of fish hooks and lures and bait casting equipment and stuff. And then I saw a shelf with guns on it. And it was unlocked. And I reached in and pulled out a 38 police special and got a box of shells. And then we booked. And we, Richard and I went down to the docks on the Brazos River, and there was the uh, half-submerged barge that we used to play on, dive off in the water from and everything. And we took the gun down there, and we're going to shoot seagulls with it. And we just got in this barge, and here comes six Mexican kids. <laughs> and when I grew up, Mexicans, blacks, and whites did not mix. And I'll just tell you what, we called the black part of town nigger town. That's, everybody called it that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, Blacks and Mexicans had to live there, and they weren't allowed in our part of town after sundown unless they had a written excuse of a job or something. Anyway, the six Mexican came up, and the one guy says, I'm going to fuck you up, white boy. He pulled out his little switchblade and started coming at these six guys, and I just took aim and fired a shot. And they all ran and dove off the end of the barge. And my fr- friend uh, Richard was laughing so hard. He said, that guy thought you were actually trying to hit him, and I said, I was. And it got sober pretty quick. It's just hard to hit anything with a pistol, especially when you're 11 years old. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I wanted to t- take his head off. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine. I could imagine. Now, how did that, uh, you know, did you end up getting caught or anything for that? Or uh... I got caught for very little I've done. Fair enough. <laughs> when I got, when I, I was in the Navy four years, I was in the Bay of Pigs, uh, Thing with Cuba, and I was in the start of the Vietnam War, and that was my Navy at four years in Navy. <clears throat> but when I got out, I was just freaking bored, uh, and so I eventually got sent up. I got caught twice, and I didn't get caught, but my rapies got caught, and they turned over on me. Yeah. That's how I solved most most of crime. Somebody snitches. Oh yeah, they get lucky and catch one, and he snitches, and all the rest. And that's what happened both my times. But uh, 
forgot where it's going. I have Alzheimer's, so. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. Take your time. Um, <laughs> let me think. Oh, anyway, when I finally got sentenced and sent to Pendleton, uh, they got me for, I think it was 80 burglaries, two strong arm robberies, a strong arm robbery, and a possession with intent. And they did a flea bargain, reduced it all down to one count of second degree burglary. I did a two to five on that. <laughs> and when I was in Pendleton, uh, President Johnson was president then, and he did this big uh, study, appointed his Blue Ribbon Commission to do a study on prisons in the United States. And one day we were out in our cells over the other side in recreation, watching one black and white TV, and uh, Johnson broke into the thing. And, with an announcement, he says, we have categorically studied all prisons in the United States, and he said, the single worst prison by far is Pendleton, and we all got up and cheered like it was our Super Bowl team. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, I've actually had a couple, uh, couple of close friends that have been there, and that's, you know, not... I, I had kind of an honor. When I was in quarantine, I had John Dillinger's cell, and that's kind of a famous cell down oh, there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I... Yep. It was kind of an honor to have his cell. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, obviously, from those of you not from Indiana, John Dillinger is, uh, you know, along with James Dean, is pretty much definition of Indiana, man. Yeah, he was the first, uh, first number one in the most wanted list. Yeah, and yeah, a lot of people don't even know, uh, hell, he was a hell of a good baseball player, too, but it didn't make him enough money. Yeah. In fact, his birthplace is pretty close to where you are, isn't it? Yeah, it is actually. Uh, yep. Yep. Yeah, he. Uh, I. I'm uh, working currently working on a biography type po- or type podcast. Uh, hopefully, be out sometime soon. But I, I actually chose Don John uh, Dillinger as my first subject. Really? Just cool. yeah, just because. You know, it wasn't a lady in red. That's what I've heard. I've in orange. In orange. Yep. And there's there's still a lot of speculation on whether or not he was even shot there in Chicago, but probably was. I'm pretty sure he was too, but you got to keep the legend alive and a lot of people don't know that 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 whole legend of John Dillinger is only like 13 months long. Like yeah. he wasn't active very long. He was in prison for a long time and Yeah. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. So uh, when you got out after doing that two to five, how was life after that? And did you did you have a hard time adjusting and stuff? No, no, I wasn't in long enough. I, I did did two years of my two to five and made parole. But when I got out, I landed in the best situation of my life. Nowadays, they don't believe in uh, uh, rehabilitation, but back then they still did. And I got into the barber school when I was in the joint, and that cost cost me ten cartons of cigarettes. But it was the best look in the place. And what it did, it prepared you for a career or for a job, a good job. And uh, they had waiting lines for us to get our, our barbering license in the joint because the guy on the street went to barber school for like nine months, and he cut one or two haircuts a day if he was lucky. Well, I went to it in two years, and I had 10 to 15 every day. We were so much better coming out of school with guys on the street, so there, there were lines waiting to hire us. We had our choice. And the first week of my job, that's in 68, I went home with $500. That was good money in those days. Oh, yeah. And never got below that. Went up to about 1000 a week shortly after that. But uh, that was in the late 60s. So 
rehabilitation did pay. The guys who went through barber school, about 85% of us stayed out. And uh, I think the the, uh, the regular guys didn't have that, that uh, schooling or trade behind them. I think their uh, rate was about 25%. 75% went back. But uh, so, no, I, I walked out to a great thing. It was the best two years. Two years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us what what it was like, uh, you know, daily life in in prison. Do you have any interesting stories from being in Pendleton for that two well, years? I have a lot of them. <laughs> Mostly it's boring. You sit around it and you know teach your trouser worm tricks and name all your ten toes and shit like that. But there, <laughs> it's you're always you always have to be on because you never know when somebody's going to come after you. They can yeah. be talking to you one minute, and next minute they go psycho on you, and it happens. So you got to be ready. I was lucky because I came from South Bend. I was had been living in South Bend since I got out of the Navy, and uh, I knew a lot of the criminals. We all ran around together. And uh, excuse me, I got a fire one up here. Nope, nope, I got you too. So South Bend was one of the larger towns in Indiana. A lot of a lot of criminals came from there. So when I hit Pendleton, I knew lots of people, and we're, I was friends with a lot of people. And uh, but if you're from a small town, you're really kind of screwed over because you have no backup. You, you don't know anybody as a rule. The guys from Indianapolis and Fort Wayne, South Bend, places like the Gary, places like that, usually have a lot of friends there. So you you're you're pretty well watched after. And I was. I mean, it was the first week in quarantine. I came back from lunch and this black guy, and it's very segregated. There, blacks and whites never mixed. I don't know how it is now, but then not. That you you would be caught dead with a black guy, black guy, vice versa would be caught dead with, mm-hmm. with a white guy, except the guys that try to make the punks. But this guy came up to me and challenged him. This black guy came up to me and challenged him what he was going to do. So we were going back in our cells after lunch, and Paul Dover is a good friend of mine. He ended up being a heavyweight boxing champ, apparently. He's truly a badass. And he says, Who's the guy? Let it point him out. So I, I said, Okay, I pointed out. And Paul went over, We're in the third tier. He went over and grabbed the guy with two hands and flipped him over the rail and held him by his ankle by one hand. And the guy started copping deuces and crying and peeing, pee, pisses running off his nose and shit. And Paul says, you ever look at this guy cross-eyed, I'm dropping you next time. And he says, if you see him coming to you across the yard, you better go to the other side. All that shit. And the guy was begging to let him up. And I remember a, a, hack, a guard walked around the corner and saw us up there at third tier. He just shook his head and walked back. But Paul eventually pulled him out, and I never had any more trouble with anybody. Hell, that's all right, man. That's all right. Yeah, uh, cop shop where all the criminals and the cops hung out in South Bend downtown one time, and a bunch of us were in there after we'd been pulling burglaries and armed robberies or whatever we were doing. And Paul was in a booth, two booths over from him. He was talking to this little Mexican chick he'd been dating. I guess she got pissed off at him, so she slapped him, and he grabbed her, and they went outside him. Back lot, so we all piled up and went behind him. Well, the gal reached in person, came out with a penknife and stuck it in Paul's neck, stuck it all the way to the hill. And Paul just laughed and pulled it out and threw it on the ground and poked her, <laughs> hit her. That was the end of that. Oh, but that's shit. the kind of guy he was. <laughs> little knife ain't gonna phase him. <laughs> oh, shit. That's, uh, that's a pretty damn good story right there, man. Um, so, so what, uh, what transpired after you, uh, you know, you went to barber school and started making a good living? Was it, uh, was it wife and kids, or, or did you start falling no, I, back well, into? I, I did get married about a year after I got out. I, I got two daughters by her, 
uh, I after I got out of the joint, then I started going to uh, uh, start attending college at IU South Bend, IUSB, and eventually earned my degree there. Graduated with honors with honors of distinction, and I'm kind of proud of that because I went to school full time, I worked full time, and I had to support my wife and kid, and she didn't work. And I see these little lads about this little girl say, oh, I had balls distance between my classes. It, and you know somebody's paying her freight, and she's, she's all stressed out about that. I thought, fuck, you ain't got any problems, Cookie. <laughs> Try working full-time and going to school full-time. Plus, I was student body president one year, and uh, I, I had a part-time job where I wrote sports and stuff in Tribune. I did some other stuff. I forget what, but I slept about four hours a night. But college is so easy. It was easier in high school, and high school is easy. <laughs> yeah, people work pretty damn hard for that piece of paper, man. I tell you what. I don't know. I don't know why. You got a law degree, don't you? Nope. Nope. What? Cousin does though. Oh, okay. Well, they college graduates try to make out like it's a big deal. Trust me, it's not. Yeah, I. Uh, I have no formal education after high school, and I actually make more than most college co- people with college degrees I know, man. And I'm like, I have no college debt, to, you know, so it's it's well, kind of amusing. I paid as I went, but I earned it all. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, Plus, man. I was and shit, too, so I was making good money there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so... uh Let's touch base on uh, some of the some of the other times you might have gotten in a uh, gotten into some trouble. I know you were incarcerated with uh, at least one famous person that I can think of. I think in Cochran, correct? Oh no, no, the Cochran's is California joint. Oh, you're probably thinking about uh, um, Charles uh, Manet. Oh yeah, yeah. Manson? Yeah. No, I uh, I'd gotten out and got a, a bachelor's degree and a, a MFA in writing, and a professor at the University of Toledo was writing a book called The Children of, of Drug Users, and for some reason he picked me to be in the book, <laughs> and he had Big Brother, Big Brother, and a holy company, he had Charlie Manson, and so he was out at Corcoran visiting Charlie Manson, and Russ recently is the guy who wrote the book. He had a copy of my first book, Monday's Meal. I had my picture in the back, and they were sitting in the visiting thing uh, talking. And Charlie saw the book, saw my picture in the book, and he picked it up and started reading He says, man, this guy sounds like a real deal. He says to Russ, he says, do you think he'd mind if I kept it? Me and give it to me. And Russ said, no, I'll get another one from him. So he read it, and he got a hold of Russell, and he says, this guy, I really like this guy. He's a real deal. He says, do you think he'd mind if I called him? And so Russ asked me, and I said, no. Well, when I was in the joint, you couldn't call out like they do today. And I didn't realize it was collect phone calls. But anyway, he ran up over a $1,000 phone bill. My wife finally put the kibosh in that and said, quit this crap. We can't afford this guy. But in the meantime, I was talking to Charlie, and he's he's a pure idiot. He's a punk. Yeah. He's he's in safekeeping, and he's in safekeeping to protect him because he, he would be out in the yard more two seconds than somebody have his number. And he's a little bitty shrimp, and he's he's a he's a punk. So anyway, I talked to Charlie a while, and then he said, my roommate wants to talk to you. And his roommate was a guy named Roger Smith, who billed himself as the world's most stabbed inmate. And it turns out he was. He'd been stabbed over three hundred times and lived, but he'd been a hitman for every every gang in the joint. And they finally put him in uh, safekeeping safekeeping with Charlie. 
to protect his ass because he would have got killed if they ever let him up population again. So anyway, Roger starts talking to me on these freaking collect phone calls, and uh, he, he wanted me to write his life story. And uh, I, I kept putting him off, putting him off, putting him off, giving him one excuse after another. And finally, he says, Les, he said, what's the real reason you don't want to write my story? And I said, Roger, you want the real reason? He said, yeah. And I said, well, it looks to me like, like you're kind of a serial killer. You keep doing the same thing over and over, stabbing people. He said, yeah. I said, well, I'm sorry. Serial killers to me are boring as hell. They keep doing the same thing over and over. And that's, oh, before that, he claimed he got religion. And he was saved and all this shit, except every other word out of his mouth is motherfucker this, motherfucker that. It didn't sound like anybody saved I knew, but I know his brand of sa- it's It's a jailhouse conversion. A lot of people get it. it the instant they're out, it's gone. But uh, he started cussing me and he says, if I ever get out of here, he's, you're the first guy I'm looking at and I'm going to take you out. And I said, I laughed and I says, dude, I said, you're in Corcoran behind 14 foot concrete walls. And I said, unless they had the biggest earthquake they've ever had in California, you're never getting out. And I said, if you did, I ain't worried about you because you're a knife guy and you're going to run into a gun when you visit me. <laughs> so that was the end of my Charlie Manson Roger Smith <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, that is great. That is great. Um, so did... I, I, I don't know if you're in your uh, other show, Unsolved Crimes, if you ever run into the Sylvia Likens story. Um, oddly enough, um, somebody just sent me a YouTube video with some information on it, and I have actually, literally just yesterday, put that on my, uh, on my list of cases to do, yeah. It's one of the biggest crime cases in Indiana. When I, it, the guy that, there was a, a teenage boy, his sister, and a mother, all got, and a daughter, all got sent up. The women got sent to women's prison, and the, the son got sent to Pendleton. He ended up being our receptionist at the barber school in the joint, and he's the prettiest guy I ever saw. I've never had any any inclination to be gay or anything, but if I was, he'd have been the guy. He's the prettiest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and anyway, everybody thought, well, they're going to make a punk out of him right away. First day, some big black guy came up and hit on, on the quad, and he jumped up. He had to jump up because the guy's like six 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 seven, and just cut his throat, and he bled out right there. And it but I mean, he little meat guy he didn't weigh 120 pounds, and but it's not your size in the joint. You yeah. be aware of everybody. You never know. Yeah. But I knew him real well. I I understand he's alive now, and I think he's sitting in Michigan City. Oh, Michigan City. One, yeah, when I was in, there was two joints. There was Pendleton and Michigan City, and the only difference was Pendleton was for inmates 35 and under. Michigan City was for 35 and over. Okay. And they have Sparky up there, the, the chair. Yes. That's the difference between them. Yeah, they Not do. All the place. They get all different levels of shit. And yeah. All that, but... <laughs> no. I kind of had... I, I kind of went to jail purposely. I don't mean I gave myself up or anything, but I knew I was going to get caught. And, I, and I've always been a writer, and I've always tried to look out for experiences, and I knew it was going to happen, and I welcomed it. I got some good material while I was there. <laughs> There ain't nothing wrong with that, man. You got to have a muse of some sort, right? <laughs> yeah, that's my muse. My wife, one of my wife says, "You just married me for material, didn't you?" And I said, "Yeah." Pretty <laughs> accurate. Uh, so let's talk about some of your books, man. Um, you've written twenty books, you said. Um, mm-hmm. 
When was your uh, first one published, and how did you feel about it? Was it like kind of like an accomplishment, like a feeling of accomplishment for that moment, or did you? Yeah. Did, okay, I did. I mean, I I'm sure like you writing from such an early age. I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, like you probably always thought in the back of your mind it was always going to happen, just a matter of time. I mean, was it anything like that, or? In a way, yeah, I knew I knew I was a good writer. You either know you are or you don't. Yeah. Or you're you're not sure, and I've always been sure. Uh, my first book was called The Death of Tarpons, and like a lot of first books, it's a thinly veiled autobiography of my childhood, and it's centered on one year. And this might be kind of an interesting story. They sold out. It was published by the University of North Texas Press in hardcover, and it sold out a few years ago, and I got the rights back because they weren't going to republish it or anything. And a British publisher, Betimes Books, just came out with it in paperback. And Endeavor Press, which is Europe's largest ebook publisher, it is published in ebook format. And it's doing great. That's awesome. And it's also, it came out in German. German. It's coming out in German. I've got two other books that are in German and some other languages. So I'm real proud of that. But that's, I don't know if you have many writers in your audience, Justin. I do have some, yeah. yeah okay. They might find this instructive. I this this was in the uh, uh, late sixties. I started sending things out, and it was not all snail mail then. There was no internet or anything like that. And to send a publisher a manuscript, you had to send manuscript, pay for the postage to get there, and you also had to include include return postage to send it back. So it was pretty pricey. I remember it used to cost me fifteen twenty bucks every time I sent it out. So I was on my eighty sixth publisher. I'd sent it to, and I. The, the next one up is University of North Texas Press. And I went alphabetically, so you can see see how long I've been doing this. Yeah. And I told myself if I got got to 100, didn't get it taken, I was going to quit. Well, in the right after I sent the 86th place, I did a workshop in Indianapolis with Mary Evans, who's a former native of Indianapolis and now a high powered literary agent. And she selected my manuscript for a workshop, so we were out having a break during that. The critique of my my manuscript, and she says, "Les, she says you're having a hard time getting this published, aren't you?" And I said, "Yeah." And she said, "I can tell you exactly why." She said, "My client, uh, her client was uh, Michael Chevron, who wrote the Mysteries of Pittsburgh, won a Pulitzer, and all this shit." Mm-hmm. She said he had the very same problem with this. Editors see your book as a, as a young adult, YA, and I said, "It's not a YA." I said, "Any more than a separate piece is a YA." And she said, "I know it, and you know it, but editors." Often don't have the same kind of brain power we do. And <laughs> it's, just, it's set around a 14-year-old boy, so they automatically put it in the YA category. And uh, she said, Michael Michael Chevron, her client, had done the same thing, so she advised him to rewrite it in, as a frame book. And I did that, did exactly what she advised me to do, sent it out to the next press, and that was UNT, and they took it. What a frame book is, she said, they see it. You got a 14 year old protagonist, so they automatically, in their minds, it's a young adult. She says, uh, and besides, it's a, it's a teenage boy. And teenage boys are the single worst demographics in publishing, the single worst. They do not read. I know there are exceptions, but overall, they don't read. They're also the single best demographic for movies, because those see the same movie four and five times. Nobody else does that. Yeah. But she said, and that's what happened. So to make it a frame story, I kept the book intact, and I added two chapters, beginning chapter, chapter one, and the ending chapter, 
In chapter one, I start out where he's an older man looking back at his childhood, and he comes back to childhood, and the rest is how I'd already written it. The last cha chapter I added was him coming back to adulthood and sold it right away. Well, that was lucky I ran into her because it might still be sitting in my drawer. But the only reason that publisher picked it, the University of North Texas Press had never published any fiction. I didn't know that. Yeah. And my manuscript was on the publisher's desk, the first one in a big pile she had for the day. And as soon as she saw it was fiction, she was just going to stick a rejection slip in it, send it back, and go on with her day. Well, that particular morning, she told me all this later, she said, her secretary came in with her coffee and spilled it and had to go back and make another pot. And in that time, she didn't have anything to do, so she picked up page one of my manuscript. From that moment, she couldn't put it down until she finished it. But it's, if I hadn't gone to Mary uh, Mary Evans, and if I hadn't, it, it hadn't landed on a desk as a very first manuscript, it never would have gotten published. That's a crazy story. There's luck, there's luck involved a lot of times, but you got to be ready for luck when yeah. it comes. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Um, of all your books that you've written, which one would be probably the one that you personally are most proud of? And uh, why? Uh, tell us a little bit about what it's about and why you're so proud of it. Okay, there's two that are tied. The okay. Rapist and Fitch. And people, may, people do shy <laughs> from those titles. Yeah. But the bitch isn't what you think. It's not a pejorative term against women. It, cons and district attorneys and all people in the criminal community refer to the three strikes in your habitual criminal law and you get light very close to it once you start out three times we all refer to it as a bitch and so it's about a guy that's been out twice his ex-cellmate gets out and begs him doing the favor he saved his life back in joint so he has to and everything he does keeps backfiring he ends up going to killing his wife his unborn son uh, his partner, a couple other guys, and, and ends up back in the joint. And the rapist, so that's why it's called the bitch. Yeah. And the rapist is, uh, I wouldn't even gonna put a rape scene in it, but my publisher did say, yeah, you gotta put this rape scene. It's a, uh, ex oh God, how do I explain this? It's a, it's a literary book, it's a philosophical book, and it's about a guy that back in uh, ancient, or not ancient times, but back to it, toward, the turn of the century, he's a recluse. He's got money, he's inherited money from his father. He went to school in Princeton and he's educated and all that, but nobody likes him. They all think he's a nerd. He lives by himself and rides a bicycle around. And uh, one day he's past going to his home and he goes to this woods and he sees this girl everybody knows is a town slut and they're running a train on her, like four guys. And uh, so he watches, gets a woody, gets off and everything. And so the next day he's down, he likes to fish too. That's about all he does is fish and read. And uh, he's down fishing and the same girl comes by and she starts teasing and says she saw him there. And so she said she was going to give him some. Now, this guy's a virgin at this point. And then he says something about her just uh, pejorative and she takes offense and, and starts to leave and he grabs her and rapes her. She gets up. After, after he's done and runs to the river and a branch hits her and she falls into the river and drowns. So they picked him up. He didn't try to get away or anything. And um, he's in prison and it's mostly his thoughts while he's in prison. He says, I didn't murder her. I just didn't help her. She murdered herself. So, yeah, get me in a rape thing, but I'm not guilty of murder at all. And that was his argument. Yeah. But it goes through a whole lot of mental things and philosophical things. And that's, 
it's a hard book to describe. Yeah. Uh, the Germans like it. That's my first book published in Germany, and they love it. I've had like 12 major newspapers rave over it so far, but they, they're a little, I don't know, I want to say smarter, but they're a little more in the deeper literature yeah. that the U.S. association is. No, that's, I've come to find that out doing this podcast. A lot of the Europeans are a little bit more in-depth and intense with with yeah. a lot of things as opposed to like Americans. That, they're, more, they're more open to things. We're, with this PC crap that's, that's been going around for 10 oh, years. Oh, shit, yeah. There's stuff up to everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could not agree with you more on that one. I think it's the worst thing that's ever happened in this country. I really do. I think we're losing all our freedoms due to it. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more or less. So, and my publisher did, wanted me to, to change the titles of both those, and I said, fuck no. I don't want those people reading my book anyway that would be offended by that. <laughs> that's, that's about how... <laughs> That's exactly how I am too. It's my whole thing is, uh, you know, if you don't like it, don't fucking listen to it. Yeah. Right. Like, twisted your arm or anything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's I take time out of my day to put out content, and if you know, I mean, I always get a crack up when I get reviews though, because I'll, I'll get a bad review, and it's like you literally hated my one episode that you listened to bad enough to leave a review, and like. I hate saying it less, but it's like I get pleasure out of it knowing that I lived rent-free in their head long enough for them to leave a bad review, man. That's funny. That's the uh, <laughs> that's my memoir. <laughs> really? Yeah. Don't rent space in my head. Son and I had that for our philosophy. We were watching the Candid Camera show years ago, mm. and the, the thing was they took over this gift shop in a mall and uh, they put a sign they put signs up all over the gift shop no change given back today so and they had the hidden cameras and all and every time somebody buy something go up and give them a $20 bill they take it or find out whatever it was would give them change and so everybody was pissed and they were interviewing them and everything finally this guy came in he handed them like $10 bill or $20 bill for a dollar ninety-nine something they give me change back and he says uh, can I have my change and she pointed to the sign it was right in front of me he says oh okay and he walked out, and he climbed at the door, and he said, "Sir, why didn't you get, you know, all up in arms about this?" And he said, uh, "I don't ever let anybody rent space in my head." And I said, "That's my philosophy." <laughs> that's fucking that, awesome. That's, it goes through life in a good way. It is too, man. That is awesome. Too many people care about all yeah. the bullshit, and it's it sucks. Yeah, it yeah it does, man. It does. So you got any uh, other interesting stories you want to share before we start getting into your future plans and all that good stuff? Well, I don't know if I have any future plans. I'm in a freaking spinal operation, a whole bunch of... I'm trying to do your... <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I can tell you a good story about... Uh, I've written some of my books that have included Kat, a former girlfriend of mine in New Orleans, and her name was Kat Duplessere. She's a cage in Kunas, and... Uh, I met her, I was in a bar one night that, uh, actually it's a bar that, um, uh, God, I'm having trouble remembering people's name. Anyway, it's it's a real honky-tonk, a blood and guts bar. Yeah. And I'm sitting there one night, it's the kind of bar you, don't, you, always, you always want to have your beer bottle in your hand because if you don't, the roaches will carry it off. <laughs> and this gal comes in and she was like fucking 
11, if there's such a thing as 11. <laughs> yeah. I mean, drop dead gorgeous. Coal black deer, uh, uh, purple eyes, or green eyes, I'm sorry, and hooters out to here. And I sat next to her and said, can I buy you a drink on? And we started talking. We It ended up she invited me to her apartment that night. So we went and did our thing at her apartment. And next day she invited me to move in with her. Well, it was kind of a hoot because she turns out, and I didn't know at the time, she was one of New Orleans' top call girls. And at the time, this is in early 70s, she was getting 100 to 200 per an hour. So I was big bucks in those days. And uh, so I hooked up with the cat, and I moved in with her because there's a trip that she picked me over all these other guys to, you know, be her, her bed partner or whatever. <laughs> and anyway, she was she was nut. Her, her mother sold her to Carlos... Um, well, I can't think of Carlos's last name. He's head of the mafia there. It was till he died. Oh, uh, Traficante? Huh? Traficante? No, no, no. It starts with an M. I'll think yeah. of it. Uh, anyway, uh, he bought her from her mom when she was nine. She said for $100. And afterwards, she said, well, he bought her for a bag of weed. And that was worth about $100. Except he, he'd get it wholesale. And so it wasn't worth anything to him. But, and she was with him. She was one of his little... Playmates until she was about 12. And she got way, way too old for his taste, so he kicked her out. He's done this to hundreds, if not thousands, of girls over the year. And she went down to French Quarter and prostituted and stole and uh, robbed sailors. And what if she could do to survive? I met her when she was 25, and she graduated to call girl status. And most of them he's done that to die very quickly. Mm-hmm. Drug overdose, somebody kills them, shanks them, or whatever. And uh, she, she survived. Really smart cookie. And I mean, Drop dead gorgeous, movie star quality. Uh, but we had kind of a uh, rough, very rough relationship. Uh, I have a million stories about her, but this is one of the best. She, uh, we'd broken up. She got me arrested. She shot at me, and neighbors called the cops and came up, and I told them it was my gun. It wasn't. It was her gun, and she shot. It. So they took took me to jail. So we broke up, and. Uh, a few months later, she I'd been it was a Sunday and I, I said I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go I'm not gonna lay any girls at all today. I just wanna lay up by the pool and read the Times Picune. So I did. I picked up sick pack and put it in my cooler, went out to the, the uh pool and I'm reading. I didn't get more than a page into the sports page when this girl I'd been seeing came up and says, Hey let's wanna go see a movie? And I said, Okay. So we went and saw him. Oh, God, what the hell is that movie? It's the one that, uh, oh, man. Anyway, I'll think of it. My memory's just going. <laughs> yeah, and um, the mobster you were thinking of was uh, Marcelo, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. His uh, nephew's a good friend of mine. He owns the bar he used to own now, and he he, he has all the waste, waste management businesses in town, which is a good mafia business. <laughs> it is, from what I've heard. And, yeah, um, but anyway, so... I'm, I, I went this girl. Oh, God, was the mood. Oh, man. I'd have to get off <laughs> and get into my file. To, anyway, hopefully I'll think of it. So we went and saw the movie, and I laughed all the way through. It was one of the funniest movies I ever saw. I came back, and I tore one up, and then she went home. So I got back by the pool again. This other girl comes out I've been seeing. She said, hey, Les, you want to go to a movie? I said, yeah. So we go to the same movie. It's what she wanted to see. And I kind of chuckled this time, but I wasn't laughing down until I cried. Went back to my place, tore up in it. This happened four times. 
<laughs> I went five times. Anyway, so about midnight, the last one left, and I go up, I go up to go to sleep. Uh, well, I'm the kind of person, if I get wake, woke up while I'm sleeping, I can never get back to sleep after that. Yeah. And I just got to bed, just got to sleep, and the doorbell rings, and I go up, and it's Cat. And I says, Cat, we're over, honey. And she's no, no, I just, I got to talk to you. And she says, I, I'll tell you what, I'll come in, just lay down with you, and in the morning, I'll talk to you where you're getting ready for work. And I says, I don't care. I'm just, we're not screwing anything, Cat. So we go, go in bed, and I jump in bed, and she took the clothes off. She jumped in, too, and she didn't try to put a move on me or anything. And about a half hour later, I'm just getting to sleep, and the doorbell rings again. And I go up, and it's Rochelle, this other girl I'd been seeing. And uh, I said, I'm sorry, Rochelle, I got company. She says, okay, that's okay. I'll see you tomorrow. I just want to talk to you. So she moves, she goes away, and, uh, excuse me. Yep. And Kat jumps up and runs to the door and opens the door and looks out and comes back. And she said, you screwing it, bitch, aren't you? And I said, well, no, I'm not. I was, but it wasn't any of her business. I said, no, I'm not, but it ain't any of your business anyway. I said, we're over, sir. And she said, you're damn right. So she stormed around, got dressed, and slammed out of there. And uh, I thought she was gone. So and then I thought, no, I better look. So I opened the door and looked, and I was on the second floor, the top floor. And the pool's in the center of the complex. And I looked down, and Rochelle's sitting in a lawn chair by the pool, and Cat, Cat's over just screaming at her. And I know Rochelle doesn't know who the hell this person is, what she's screaming at her for or anything. So I come out, and I said, Cat, I said, get your ass out of there, and I ain't going to argue with them, calling the cops. And she said, that's cool, I'm going. So she started, people are creatures to have it. Cat always parked on the left side, and Rochelle always parked on the right side when they came over. So they both got up. And I thought, I'll just explain to Marty Rochelle what was going on. She'll understand. She's a big girl. So I go back to bed, and then I thought, nah, I better double check. So I get up and look out the door again. And sure enough, uh, Rochelle's going around the side to her car, <laughs> and cat's right in her butt. She, her mouth just going a mile a minute. So I ran back, and I didn't have time. To I'd sleep in the nude, so I grabbed a pair of skivvies to one and came back and ran around the, the walkway. And there's a little place where you can look out over the parking lot. So I ran around the walkway and got there, and I could see Cat and her. She's got her back up against this car, and she's just letting her have it. Her mouth's going like crazy. So I thought, oh, man, there's going to be some chitter. So I run down, run downstairs, run around the corner. Just so I got around the corner, Cat took her arm up and hit her, and she hit her harder than I've ever seen a guy hit another guy. <laughs> and she's going up to get her again. Well, what I didn't realize, neither did Rochelle the she stabbed her. I thought she just hit her. So she's going up again, and I grabbed Pat's arm with one hand, and I grabbed Michelle with the other, and I threw him apart. And uh, it, and Cat come up with the knife off her knees and tried to gut me, and I grabbed her hand and hit it on my knee, and she lost the knife. So my first thought is get the knife, because without that, she can't do anything. It's pitch dark out there. So I come around, I find the knife first. And as soon as I find Cat sees I got it, she just let out screaming and ran to across the thing to where her car was and I got this knife in my hand and I'm trying to fold it and it won't fold it's bent into play it's a big ass knife not one of those little skinny things they show on TV it's a serious knife and I walked over to Rochelle she was standing up against this car and I said oh Rochelle she, she hit you got, and she had little tiny sprinkles of looked like Tabasco sauce on her blouse I said oh Rochelle she must hit you in the nose you got a nosebleed she said no I ducked she hit me in the back I said well turn around she turned around her entire blouse of bright red and it was running like a stream down into her pants and I said you've been stabbed and she says I have she didn't even know it and I said yeah I said we better look at this we better take you to the hospital she said no just go to the pool and you take a look at it 
So I went over by the pool where it was lit, and look, and all I could see was just like an inch and a quarter, inch and a half entry mark, and that's all. And the blood seemed to be stopping, and it would bubble a little bit. But I said, no, I need to take you to the hospital. She said, no, just take me up to your room, see if you can bandage it or something, I'll go home. I said, okay. So she walks upstairs to my apartment, get in. I found a towel that didn't have any tape, so I ran down this corner apartment where an electrician I knew lived, and I said, hey, man, I need some tape, you guys. So he brought electrician's tape down. We, we wrapped this towel around her back. And she says, Les, I think I'd better go to the doctor. She says, I'm feeling kind of faint now. Well, as it turns out, she was lucky to be alive, much less walking up and downstairs. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay. She said, but don't take my tape. She says, take my car. I don't want to leave it here in case that bitch comes back. Well, it didn't dawn on me. Cat didn't know what she didn't know her. She didn't know what car. There was a reason for it. She had dope in her trunk. She just made a run to Houston. She had garbage bags full of dope in her trunk. She didn't want to cops find that. <laughs> so, but I didn't find that out until later. So I drive her over to this neighborhood little hospital, little clinic, and took her. And when I pulled up the emergency thing, ran a cop came out, and I told him what happened. He ran. They got a nurse, put uh, Rochelle in a uh, wheelchair and wheeled her inside. And I, and I didn't see her until the next morning. Anyway, the cop came back and he, he wanted to know what happened. I told him I had a knife and I gave him a knife. And uh, he said, okay. So I went in the waiting room. There wasn't anybody in there. It's like 2 or 3 in the morning at this time. I go in there and sit down by myself. And pretty soon, about 20 minutes later, here comes a real deal, a real cop. And uh, he's got the knife and the rent a cop. And he asked me, how is she? And I said, I don't know. You have to check with the doctor. I said, my thought was, it hit a bone in her back and that bent that so it bent the knife and you can bleed a lot from a little wound and I said I think she's going to be alright but I don't know you need to check with the doctor well the guy never checked with the doctor he just left and I told him where she'd probably be a place called the Godfather which uh, the Godfather actually owned and uh, he left and about half an hour after he left here comes this middle aged woman in this guy you remember Miami Vice yeah uh, the guy that was the lieutenant had all acne scars on his face this guy was a dead ringer for him this was before Miami Vice but when I saw it I thought Jesus that's him right up to me I was the only one in the waiting room she says that's my daughter and if she dies you die and this guy will do it well as it turned out this guy was a hitman for the mafia and she was connected with the mafia and so was Rochelle I didn't know any of this and I said ma'am I said I saved your life and she says I've heard the story I I realized you didn't do it but she said she wouldn't have been there except for for you and you, and she's my only daughter so she goes you go so I had to sit in the waiting room all night and every time I go to the bathroom I think should I just book it to Canada or California or something Mexico now but I came back and it just as the sun was coming up in the morning uh, the doctor came out and he got us all together and he said well he says we think she's going to make it it was touch and go there for a while he said we couldn't get a clear picture of her lungs he said the knife went from here to here, and he tipped my middle finger to my wrist, which is about the length of the blade, about yeah. seven inch blade. He said it went all the way in her, but he said it barely missed her lungs, but we couldn't get a good picture until it cleared up. And it finally clawed and moved away. And I can't even measure distance, but missed it. Otherwise, she would drown in her own blood. But and they had to give her three whole units of blood and all this shit. And he says, I think she's going to be all right now. So. We get ready to go, and the woman is her mother. Says, "You're still off the hook." She says, "She dies, you die." So that was Pat and me. 
<laughs> we, got, we got back together a couple times after that. But, yeah. <laughs> oh, have you uh, and and just just I'm asking this question just for the sake of the listeners. Have you been to back to uh, Louisiana or New Orleans since then? Yeah, yeah, sure. My wife, when I got married to my present wife, I said I can't live in Fort Wayne. I hate Fort Wayne. Yeah, uh, it's used to it, but I've lived know. in worse cities, man. But I've I've definitely been around the uh, the New Orleans area, and it's yeah. it's yeah, so it's amazing. Most exciting city in the world. I love it. The oh. food's good. Yeah, I love everything about New Orleans. But oh. yeah, we moved down here because I said I won't live in Fort Wayne, and then she had a miscarriage. And we ended up moving back, and I've been here ever since. So, <laughs> so plans, man, plans, and God laughs. <laughs> Well, that's how Indiana does it, man. You leave, yeah. and then it sucks you right back in somehow. Yeah. I, and send your women out after you. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've lived in a couple other states, including, like, Arizona and California, and somehow I always ended up back here, man. Where'd you live in Arizona? Uh, Phoenix. Oh. Phoenix. I Phoenix, but I love Scottsdale. Well, I wasn't rich enough to live in Scottsdale, <laughs> so... My best friend lives there. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I lived in St. David for a little while too, which is a really really small town in the middle of the damn you desert. You live in Cave Creek, if you know where that is. <coughs> yeah, that's high dollar. His back view on his windows is Black Mountain, mm-hmm. but uh, his next door neighbor is Charles Barkley, and two doors down is uh, El Gandhi. Lady wrote all the vampire books. I can't remember her name. Oh, uh, oh. <laughs> Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, she's horrible writer. But that's, <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Well, who are some of the some of the more well known people that you uh, have met and that you like and dislike? Oh God, there's been a ton. Of, well, I was in the hair business for a long time, and I worked for a number of top salons. So I mean, I used to cut Ricky Nelson's hair. Um, oh God, what's his name? He's dead now too. The, all the ones I know are dead. Um, Paul Newman. His hair. Um, now I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of the movie The Hustler because I'm a pool player. That's my favorite. Movie. Oh god, dude! It's it's honestly my. I have three favorite movies, and it's The Hustler because Paul Newman. I mean, for somebody who yep. plays pool, let alone from a cinematical standpoint, it's such a fucking amazing movie, man. And uh, that, and definitely Rebel Without a Cause, and uh, The Deer Hunter. The Deer Hunter is like. I like both those. Oh, man. I Once Were Warriors, and I bet you'd like that, too. What was that? Once Were Warriors. It's yeah. a New Zealand flick. Yeah? About Maoris, the city Maoris, and real ones, and it's really violent, but it's just a cool, cool story. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to check that out now. I, I, I taught various universities from UCLA to uh, Toledo to St. Francis, all over the place, and I usually get a film class, and I'll tell them, I'll ask who the favorite actors are in today's generation. I'll say like Tom Cruise. I said Tom Cruise is not a freaking actor. I said you want to see you want to see the difference between a good actor and a piss poor. And I said go rent the Color of Money. Yeah. Tom Cruise is in. Yep. Paul, and then rent the Hustler. And then you tell me who can act and who can't. Because Paul Newman was the same age as Tom Cruise was, and he made the Color of Money. Yeah. He's, he's a he's a well paid model. It's reading lines. All he is. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. Cause like, oh, when he 
Paul Newman was like 21, 22 when he did that. And man, the freaking guy, I think he's the best actor ever lived. You can have your Marlon Brando's dolls. Paul Newman's my man. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. The first time I saw that movie, I was just like, who? And I mean, I was real young, and I... Yeah. And I was just... You're just it's so engrossed in the story. Yeah. And I think the part of it that attracted me to it, I suppose, is just the the recklessness of him you know he was just so reckless his character was so reckless in that movie that and you know at the end he has to walk away from the one thing that he loves yeah. you know and then it was so great the only good thing about the color of money was fast eddie was back you know what i mean yeah. and it I, just i was in the navy when that movie i was in san salvador down by cuba when the movie came out, and I was the hustler at our base, so I, I picked up the nickname Fast Eddie, and that, that was my nickname all the rest uh, way through the Navy. Yep, yeah. that's that's the one thing uh, all the non-pool players don't understand. It's That's one of them sports you cannot give yourself a nickname. <laughs> you fucking... Somebody else has to give you one. Yeah. But, yeah, um, but yeah speaking of which, which uh, have you met anybody um, author-wise or anything like that that you just fucking despise man just as a uh, shitty yeah, person I feel that I don't know who sees this <laughs> yeah there's several there's, there's a lot of phonies out there yeah uh, I, I, I won't tell you this guy's name because he thinks we're best friends and all this <laughs> I guess I'm his best friend but he's not mine but anyway he spent he got his rich daddy wrangle, wrangle a night and sing sing or one of the joints and so he could write about the joint well, they protect his ass all the way in. Ain't nobody bad even got come close to him. And he got now he thinks he knows what it's like to be inside. And he writes these god awful books about he's a bestseller, which makes me even more pissed. Yeah. Because it's all wrong. He's like those MSNBC pros, you know, in the uh-huh. joint. They get all fucking wrong. They all they show are the weightlifters and the psychos. And that's like two percent of the population. Weightlifters are totally harmless. They're they're so into their job lifting weights. They they don't bother anybody. They're so steroided out too. They they're in a fog all the time. And the cycles, everybody knows them. You just avoid them. But and they they that's why people think it's in the joint. Those two guys. They think everybody's getting raped and all this shit. It's just not like that. <laughs> oh, that's pretty nice enlightenment right there. Actually, um, is there anybody that you were you were in the joint with that uh, when they came out actually did some you know positive things with their life too or there or did you have that certain group of friends that just kept going back man yeah but I just associate that's one reason I stay out the back pro ops one of the conditions that you don't associate with known criminals and there's a good reason for that because if you do you probably get right back in and peer, peer pressure will take you there yeah. So oh, I didn't after I got out. I mean, I'd run into guys once in a while, but I didn't hang with them or anything. But uh, the guys who went to bird school, I saw them stayed out. Guys are in another trades, most of them went back. All and right. if they just do something, teach people an honest trade, they, they would see the rates go way down. Prisons today are really messed up. They really are. They, they get to do a lot more things than I could when I was in there. We don't have TVs in our cells. We couldn't call people. None of that shit they got today. Uh, and you couldn't cook in your cell. I mean, they have all kinds of free, 
TV would have got me through ten years so much easier. Yeah. But it's still it's still not easy to do time. I don't care what anybody says. They're never going to be country clubs. Yeah. What was the uh, what was some of the the little the little things that made your time go like a lot easier and that you know would bring you know just that little little bit of joy to your day, man. Oh, when I see somebody get shanked or something, now he's making me feel good. Because <laughs> it wasn't you, right? <laughs> it's fun to talk about it. I was in the town hall one day, my first year, and they feed you in shifts. There's about 2,500 inmates in Pendleton when I was there, and they feed you in shifts of about 500. So there's four or five shifts going on, so you don't want to get everybody together all at once. So I was eating chow one night, and I looked up, and here comes this inmate cook, and he's got meat cleavers swinging back and forth the strike and uh, he gets to our table to a guy on the end of our table and the guy saw him at the last minute stood up and he, the inmate just came up and, and buried the meat cleaver in the guy's stomach as it turned out later the guy was slow walking for a pack of cigarettes and hadn't paid him so that's why he, he took him up but the guy grabbed the meat cleaver went out the door and across the, the quads out there across that is the hospital so he, he walked all the way to the hospital up, got almost all the way up the steps and he fell down and everything came falling out and all his guts and everything. That was kind of cool. <laughs> Bet it was. Oh, I couldn't even imagine, man. Couldn't even imagine. I was in eight riots when I was there. Not even counting when I came in and when I first went down there. Yeah. But, Pretty much free for all during the riots then? Yeah. The reason they have riots is not for demands or anything. At least in those days. Just so you can cook, uh, so you can cook up some booze. Because when you make booze, you got to you, you, you sterilize your stool, mm-hmm. and and you don't flush it the whole time. It takes about three days to make it. You put you, you get fruit, apricots or apples or whatever, and you put it in and uh, with uh, yeast and all that shit. It takes about three days to become alcoholic. So you, if they never right, they couldn't make fruit. They could, they call it pruno now. We just, I forget what we call it, but yeah, so we can make booze. <laughs> That's that pretty. That's <laughs> pretty interesting. <laughs> oh man! There were no gangs when I was in or any of that shit. Really? Yeah. It was like ten percent blacks and ninety percent uh, whites. I I think I knew one Mexican. It was all it was all traditional crimes in my day, back in the day. The hat you know, robbery and murder and shit like that. Yeah, none of that selling heroin to thirteen-year-old girls and shit. Yeah. Yeah, now it's a bunch of suburban punks selling supplement their allowances or whatever they do it for. Yeah, I can definitely definitely see that. That's for sure. So, um, what uh, what big plans do you got coming up? Or actually, before we get on that, um, what who was a writer that really really inspired you? Oh, there's been a lot. Harry Cruz is one of the biggest. And nowadays it's Joe Lansdale. He's got a series, TV series based on his books on uh, Sundance called Happen Leonard. He's a real good friend of mine. He's a, he's one of the top writers in the country. And I got a huge charge because he he told the world that I was his favorite crime writer. And that's I that's high cotton because yeah. he's one of the best there is. But yeah, there's a lot of people that I I think are great. Paul Brazel from England. I admire a lot of English writers and European writers. Cause they, 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 they're just more open. Yeah. Uh, Ray Banks, who's from Glasgow, he's a great writer. But no, I know a lot of 
I do these workshops, and it's usually best-selling authors, and I'm in with them when, when they do it. And I, Ken Bruin, who's a very famous writer from Ireland, world famous, he calls me the uh, the uh, the king of noir. So that's <laughs> some people I really respect. That's awesome. Um, out of I mean, did you fall into the crime writing aspect just because that's what you knew? Yeah. I mean, I've always, yeah, I've always written about crime. I like the dark side. Yeah, don't we all? Yeah. That's very, yeah. very cool. I, I was writing crime stuff before I ever did anything. Yeah. But I wasn't very knowledgeable about it. I, yet I took all my info from TV and movies and crap and bad books. It's like, <laughs> it's, it drives me nuts when I see most of the guys I know that are writing crime they don't they don't know the first thing about it. their idea of being a criminal is hanging out at a strip club or something I don't know get thrown in a drunk tank for two days and that <laughs> down they pull it all and they don't know anything <laughs> but it drives me nuts oh man that's great um before we start getting into your future plans and start uh plug in some of your your websites and stuff like that um if there were any advice to to give from somebody who has lived the life that you live and like been and seen some of the stuff that you've seen and and i mean even if it's writing related what what kind of advice you know what kind of two you know like like say if you had two minutes in a room with some fucking idiot kid you know, what What would you tell that person? First of all, I'd say don't write a novel. Go to Hollywood and write screenplays. That's where all the money is. <laughs> it just is. And yeah. in all honesty, I can definitely and, see that. And it's so much easier. Yeah. I wrote the first screenplay knowing nothing about it except the basics. I wrote it in two days flat. And now, anybody can write a bad screenplay in two days. This is very good. It was the semifinals in the Nichols Foundation Awards. And Nichols is the biggest, most prestigious screenwriter award out there. And it places the semifinals. Uh, that means I was within 100 of 4,500 people that sent them in. But it's a young man's game. If you're over 35, you're too old for Hollywood. Yeah. It, it's very ages, very ages. And, uh, but if you're a young guy, I would just say get your butt to. Hollywood and start writing screenplays, learn everything you can about it. Uh, if you're going to be a novelist, good luck. No money in it. Yeah, yeah. I, as we were talking, um, Kevin actually hooked me up with uh, his press company, and um, I'm actually getting ready to submit a couple manuscripts. Cool. Um, I. To be honest with you, I don't know the first thing about writing it, so I'm I'm actually pulling in a co-author to help me. Um, but I think, personally for me, I guess, it's not so much the money, but the story, you yeah. know? Because there's some stories that just have to be told that haven't been told. Absolutely, I agree with that. You know, yeah. just, just self you know, self gratification. I guess you could say, just knowing that you put it out there. But there's the money, and then there's all the girls, all the women. <laughs> I'm kidding. Have you ever fans of writers? I saw some of Kevin's. <laughs> you don't get groupies like rock stars. Do. They're a much plainer. Yeah, a bunch of librarians, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's great. 
Um, so uh, let's tell everybody how they can get a hold of you and where they can find your books and all that good stuff. I get just about all my books on Amazon. Just just dialing my name, Les Edgerton. Yep. I have Blogspot. It's kind of long. It's www.lessedgertononright.blogspot. Yeah. Uh, backslash. Okay. And I am definitely, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to post all those links on all the the social media that I use too when I publish this episode, which will probably be in about an hour. So, um, the one, the, I think under Les Edgerton, I also have a Twitter account called Book on the Wall. Cool. Awesome. All right, Les. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out, man, and doing, doing the interview and stuff. Cause like I said, man, when I was sitting there talking to you at dinner, I was just like, I was like, this guy is, this guy is too much, man. I gotta <laughs> Thanks, <Dustin>. <laughs> <laughs> you don't talk much about yourself in these, do you? Uh, not very often, man. To be honest with you, not very often. Um, but I don't know. Nobody, nobody really cares enough to ask me about me. They're always talking about the. Back and interview you. <laughs> uh, that would be pretty interesting, man. I, in all honesty, I've not had the life you had, but I've definitely had an interesting one that is for sure i've been a lot of places and and met a lot of good people and you know met some of the best people i'll probably ever meet in my life and you know i've been homeless i've i have you know done bad things for to get by to feed myself and you know that's that's just how life rolls sometimes and now i'm a dad and i do a podcast and that's pretty much my life in a nutshell man <laughs> that's been interesting that's for sure but yeah people are more interested people are more interested in all the dead people that i that i try to investigate is what it is i get you know i'll get numerous some of the some of the emails i get sent are pretty interesting along with like random things on social media but it's it's pretty I, cool i had one that you, you probably either done or you're aware of uh the furniture magnet in New Orleans and his girlfriend killed his wife and it was a big trial and he had F. Lee Bailey and all this shit and he got acquitted but the deal was the wife supposedly shot herself but she was left handed the gun was in her right hand and she, and she held a pillow over her head when she shot herself supposedly really? yeah oh it was a big ass case I had personal experience with that because I I got hired by bus at the Fairmont Fairmont Hotel's one of the oldest hotels in the world. It's where they wrote the book Hotel. It was about the Fairmont. And then when they made the TV series and the movie, they switched to the San Francisco Fairmont, same family. But the original book was written about the New Orleans Fairmont. And I walked in my first day, and this gorgeous woman just comes sweeping into the shop. She's all Miss Mel, Dramata, Tom, and all this. And it turns out she was the girlfriend. Aaron, uh, I can't think of Aaron's last name. I have problems with names. She was his little... Babe, and uh, he's a little typical Jewish guy, a little shrunk guy, older, and she's this gorgeous blonde. And she said, Les, I've read your resume, and I'm going to take the shot from Busta, and I, I, I'm going to need a manager, so I'd like to hire you. I didn't know anything about this, so I went in the back room and asked Busta. He said, yeah, she's trying. I brought her in for money because I rented this huge debt doing coke, and she's bailed me out. Now she's trying to take over. She wanted all the styles of her taxes and all this shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's stupid, but I had to work here. I worked at three months, and I couldn't take it anymore. She's she's on one side pulling my coattail. Come work for me, and I thought if I turn her down, I might end up dead. 
if you look it up, Zarin something, they own a bunch of furniture stores in New Orleans. Yep. It was it was a big case like the Candy Mosler case was. Yeah. Well, similar. I know you're familiar with that one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually just wrote that down. Now I'm going to check that out. That's for sure. It's it's a Jewish name, something Wits, but Kirkwitz or something. That's not it, but it's something like that. Okay. It was a COVID case, and I was up front and close personal in that one. <laughs> nice. Nice. All right, Les. Well, shit, man. You got any uh, You got any last rights you want to give out before we... Just, I don't know, keep your... <laughs> That's good advice right there, man. <laughs> Is our work here done? Yes, sir. Um I hope I get to see you again here sometime soon, man. We'll have to meet up for dinner or lunch or something when you ain't yeah. busy. I usually drink my dinners and lunches so we can do that. <laughs> you know what? That sounds like a damn good plan right yeah, there. Call anytime, Justin. All right, man, I appreciate it. See right. you in church. Yeah, see you later, man. Give your offering. I'd be my dumps in general. <laughs> I'll talk to you later, man. All right. <laughs> Bye.